it radiated the fact that I see you, you're not a threat, I'm just doing my thing. But I was a little bit spellbound. I think spellbound isn't the word. That's the first question. Did you take a photo? And so it immediately puts you on the defensive because when you say no, if you say well, it didn't happen, you're on the back foot of what's your little story. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Welcome to episode 76 of Big Cat Conversations. We're coming to you in early June 2022. In this edition, we're going to hear of several sightings from the past in Aberdeenshire, in the mid-east of Scotland. And we'll also hear about a type of black cat that became known as the Kellis cat in the northern parts of Scotland in the 1980s and through to the early 1990s. To guide us through these points, our guest is Carol. She's still based in Aberdeenshire, and it remains an area of credible reports, as some of our listeners in Scotland especially will know. So, Carol, thanks for coming on the show and welcome along. Thank you very much for inviting me, Rick. Okay, Carol, I know we're going to hear about four sightings and encounters that you had way back, and you're going to take us through them, I think, sequentially as they happened. Was it the first event that got you going in the subject, or had you heard about it and had you developed an interest before you had your first sighting? I was involved with it through the Cats Protection. I was a member for 30-odd years, still am. Our local vet phoned me up and asked if I had a rehabilitation cage for a lady that lived not far from me whose mother cat went missing and she was left with several kittens to hand rear. And that's how it started because one of the kittens that she kept was attacked by a sandy-coloured large cat. She actually saw the, the attack happen. She was working in the garden at the time and she heard her own cat scream and this very much deeper cat yowl. And she actually turned around and saw the big cat on top of the small one. The small one survived with broken hip and two broken back legs. That was the very first time that I had heard of any cats in our area. Okay, so it started off with the welfare of domestic cats in the Cats Protection League. Was it called that then? That's what it's called these days, isn't it? It was called the Cats Protection League. It is now the Cat Protection without the League. Okay. Yeah, so it was Cat Protection League at the time. Okay, what an introduction to it. All of this we're going to hear from has been in Aberdeenshire, Carol. That's right, isn't it? Yes. About five miles away from Aberdeen. Right. So the first time you actually had a sighting yourself, what happened? I had been feeding feral cats in a farm not far from us on a three-day week with other people feeding in between. And I saw in the paper one night that a friend of mine and her two daughters had been out walking their German shepherds and had seen a black cat disappearing off a dry stone dike into some wooded area beside the golf course, and then it came out again. So the first thing I knew about it was this thing in the paper about this black cat. 
And I remember being really miffed that it wasn't me that had seen it. So that's what got me into practically living at that derelict farm for three weeks. And what was the date of this, Carol? 1997. So you moved to sort of set camp there, did you? I waited in my car. I used to feed the cats every second day. And people in the village knew that if they saw my car there, because of the newspaper coverage of this black cat, they knew that if my car was there, not to bother me. And to be honest, a lot of people stopped walking their dogs up there because of the big cat being there. Okay, so what happened? You encountered it one uh, day eventually. It was around about the same time every night on three occasions in that three weeks. It came out of the same copse of trees. I was sitting in the car. I didn't have a camera the first time I saw it, but I did have binoculars. So it went exactly the same area, came out of the same area, went down the road away from me. So I never saw the head. It was always the body and the legs. I couldn't make up my mind what it was until I saw the tail. So I went in and bought myself a decent camera. And uh, as I say, in three weeks, I sat in my car until I saw it again. I got a photograph of it at 0.2 of a mile away from where I was sitting in the car. But I remember taking the film to Costco at the time. And I knew the, the chap that did the developing there. And I went in and said, is it a big cat? Is it a big cat? And he says, well, there's something big and it's black, but we can't tell what it is. Ah. Obviously, I had it on the wrong setting. It was a new camera. So I thought, well, to while away the hours for that three weeks, I photographed deer, badgers, foxes, hares, rabbits, other people's dogs, cows, from exactly the same place that I was at to exactly the same place that I had photographed it. So I have all of those as evidence to judge with the size of the cat that I saw. So that was the second sighting. The third sighting, I had decided that I would sit in the car in another area. I parked my car in the opposite direction so that when the cat came out of the copse of trees, it would either come towards me in the car or go across the road and hopefully jump over the fence. So there were two young foxes on the hill to my right and I looked up and I was watching the foxes and then suddenly a blackbird landed. There was a, a gas substation there unmanned and this bird was just going bananas and I thought something's a way to happen. I just turned my head and here was the cat right in front of my car and I was shocked. I reached over and I locked the door of my car my hands were trembling. I had a tripod set up on my steering wheel. My hands were shaking. I thought I've got to get a better photograph than I did before. So I hoped it would jump over the fence, but it didn't. It went underneath the fence. So I just got a photograph of the end of its tail. Yeah. And what time of day was that? That was exactly the same time, quarter past 11, on a July night. It was beautiful weather and all three sightings were of the same, the same weather pattern at exactly the same place and practically at the same time. 
So that was still semi-light, was it, North Scotland in July? It was very good because the sun was going down in the west and I was facing west. What was the strategy of the cat? What was it doing, do you think? Was it coming out to hunt and stalk, do you think, each time? What was its behaviour mode, do you think? The first twice I'd seen it, I was down at the farm looking east. This time I was in the east looking west and the cat had decided it would go its normal route but couldn't see the car because of all the gorse bushes on either side. And when it saw me turn my head, it noticed obviously the car and it just needed to get out of sight. So I got out of the car I was my camera, absolutely shaking like a leaf. And the road that I was on was slightly higher up than the field. All the cows were lying down. It wouldn't have gone into the field if the cows had been standing up because it would have been chased. So it went into the bushes and I stood there and there was a rustle in the bushes. And I thought, oh dear, this is not a very good idea. So I thought, well, I've got to try it. I've got to try and get a photograph. I'd outshot this enormous fox, but it wasn't interested in me. It hadn't seen me. It was lower down, but it had seen what had gone into the bushes and it was terrified. But as soon as it saw me, it ran off. So I went back to the car and I coasted down the road towards the farm and I could see it in the distance just disappearing into the derelict garden. And that was the last I saw of that one. Now, before we get on to the description of the cat, the large cat, what do you think it was predating? Do you think it was actually going for some of the domestic, the feral cats, feral domestic-sized cats that you were there to help? None of our cats at the farm ever went missing. They had lots of big bales, big round bales. They could get in between that where a big cat couldn't. There were times I used to go up there two or three o'clock in the morning with my headlights on and I could see the small cat's eyes, um, usually in pairs. Um, there weren't one or, once or twice that I actually saw much bigger eyes on their own, just one cat, which I thought it was probably sheltering from the bad weather. But a lot of the cats and dogs and rabbits and pets from the village did go missing round about then. Do you think the feral cats got alert to it and became wary? We always fed at the same time every day. Different people, there were three of us on a rota. So the cats always knew. We used to heat our tins of cat food on the radiator in the winter so that when the cat food got up to them, because we had to walk quite a distance in the snow and it was often past our waist, the food was still warm and, of course, they would eat it quickly. And then it would disappear in, with various boxes in mangers that probably big cats wouldn't be able to get. So there was a bothy as well with a very, very thin piece of tree trunk uh, that the cats used to be able to get away from dogs. There were quite a few loose dogs, you know, farm dogs from other farms used to come looking for a bitch. And, you know, they often were in the farmyard when we would appear. The feral cats, the farm cats, there wasn't enough rats and mice and rodents and small rabbits for them to feed on. They did need your supplementary food. Yeah, there were plenty of rabbits. But over that the two years that the cat was around, a huge drop in the number of rabbits that were seen. And we did have myxomatosis then, but we very, very rarely saw any rabbits around. One of our female cats, 
it was all neutered. I neutered all of them. Used to see it out in the open, quite close to the, the gorse bushes, and should be stalking a rabbit. But if you feed your farm cats properly, they will kill rabbits and they won't eat rats. They'll only kill them. They'll eat rabbits and they'll eat mice. But they won't deplete their larder if they don't know where their next meal's coming from. Mm -hmm. That's a silly thing. You know, you wouldn't get a cat killing everything that moved and then suddenly thinking, oh, I don't have any more food. We were feeding them so that they could do it for fun, really. They knew where their next meal was coming from. And that was one of the jobs I did for the Cats Protection, going around all the, the farms and educating the farmers that if we neuter in return, you need to feed your cats or they won't do the business for you and keep your vermin down. Okay. Shall we go on to your fourth sighting, which was your final one? Well, I was in a bus coming back from Aberdeen to Huntley and I was watching the wildlife as I always do. I'm a great believer in getting information from wildlife. They know far more about what's going on than humans do. And there were some, uh, quite a, a flock of pink-footed geese in a field at Blackburn. And I watched them and they all were pointing in the right direction, the same direction. They were looking west and it was very unusual. And I thought there's something in the next field. And there was a big cat, but it wasn't totally black. It was quite a dark brown, deeper than a chocolate light, like a liver colour. And I know that that one had been seen by several friends over the previous months. It was on its own. There was no lay-by. There were no cars around. Uh, there were no lorries or anything. It wasn't a dog that was going out for a sniff about. This cat had a purpose. And these geese were watching it. But I never saw that one again. Do you think it was coming towards them knowing there was some potential prey, that they were prey items and they knew that or that they were wary? It was scouting along the side of a fence, and I don't think it was it had any intentions of going for a goose. I've known them to take swans when they've been nesting. That happened a couple of years ago, and not far from there. We didn't actually see what did it, but there wasn't very much left of it. The neck and the head were gone. The wings were there, but the chest cavity was completely cleared out. So you think the final sighting by the field of geese was a different cat from the first three? Definitely, yes. It was a different build altogether. Okay. Can we have a sort of detailed description of the colour and the form and the behaviour of the one you saw the first three times? Right. The first, second and third ones that I saw were the same cat. It was much slimmer than I thought it would be. I'd been up to see Di Francis's Callus cats. It definitely wasn't a Callus cat. I had seen her cats before I saw this one. And the one that in front of me, I couldn't even see the tail because the way it trotted with its head down, all you could see was the back and the two back legs. There was no sign of any tail, but I suppose it was, it was following the pattern of the trot. It was balanced with one leg, so you only ever saw two legs, but no tail. And it was sleek black, very lightweight, very slim. I haven't seen a dog of any breed 
that is anything like it. The nearest I got to it was the sort of size of a greyhound and that kind of build. But the tail that I saw that I just got the tip of was the tail of a melanistic leopard. Definitely very long and curled up at the end. What about leg thickness and shoulder blades and head shape and ear shape? Did you see any of that? I didn't see the head because the head was lower than the shoulder blades on every occasion, even in the photo. I'm hoping that uh, technology will help me out in the future and sort the photographs that I have because it's quite pixelated at that distance. That's a shame. I doubt it can, to be honest, from what I've heard from people. The lower light doesn't help. I know it wasn't um, dark, dark. No, it wasn't dark, dark. But by the time I got out and got scared by the fox, it was beginning to get a bit dark then. And by the time I coasted down in the car towards the farm, I would have only seen a blur. What sort of scale was it overall, do you think? I can only judge it against the breeds of dogs that I have studied and taken photographs of. And I would say it was bigger than a black Labrador and smaller than a greyhound. Very slim, very slim. And that's why I think it was a a young one. It wasn't an adult. It wasn't muscular. And was it properly wild and confident and healthy, do you think? It was all that, yes, definitely. It didn't look starved. It seemed to be alert enough to know that my car wasn't in the usual place. And when it came round the corner, here I was sitting there and it knew to turn and disappear. Very interesting to see the bird's reaction. Sometimes people do see crows and birds mobbing them. Nature gives them away sometimes. I've never seen a blackbird reacting to a fox the way it did. I knew it wasn't the foxes that had set it off, but it obviously thought this big cat is something to be worried about. What about other people's reports of it? So you, you said other people were seeing it. What kinds of reports did you get to you? I interviewed lots of people at different times of the year. People knew me because through the cat's protection. And farmers all knew me because I neutered most of their cats. The farmer that the feral cats were on didn't believe me to begin with. And then they kept getting sheep being killed and taken and stripped to the bone overnight. I didn't, unfortunately, manage to get a photograph. There was nothing much left of them. By the time the foxes got there and chewed all the the rib bones. Did anybody see it go for deer or did anybody see it actively stalking, hunting? What Were there any other kinds of sightings? Obviously not me, but I have uh, several people who were in the horsey world and one in particular used to see to her horse first thing in the morning, six o'clock in the winter. She often saw it going exactly the same place over a road against the snow and jumping over a six-foot wall. And then somebody else saw the same one chasing a deer at Hazelhead Park. And that one was seen by my friend. And then another two reports of the same cat slightly later in the day. And what kind of geographical spread was this? Was this all in the same few square miles or further afield? I would say it was about 30 miles it was seen because... I could only keep in contact with the the people that I knew in the area that I lived or worked. They knew to contact me. When it went from my area 
sadly, I had to become a mature student and go to college. And I didn't have the same time to develop all my, you know, my sightings. But over the next few years, there were so many people that contacted me. And I had friends that read the papers. People sending me snippets of various papers, I still do. These sightings, do you think they were mainly the one that you saw the first three times, or do you think they were sightings of the two different ones you saw? And and could you tell from descriptions what they were? The brown cat was actually a slightly bigger, stockier build. As I say, I only saw that one once, but I had a friend that lived in that area and she had seen it. She'd seen a carcass being, you know, lying at the side of the road. It was a roadkill. And uh, there was nothing left in the morning. There was just a few bones. If you'd had to make a judgment as to what species that brown one was, do you think it was still a melanistic leopard, most likely, but just not as dark as they can get? I'm really not sure about that one because I was moving in the bus. I couldn't really make a judgment on it. It was just a stockier, thicker leg, thicker tailed, a bigger head. It could have been a male. It actually reminded me of the photo fit that Di Francis had got a lot of her witnesses together. They gave her descriptions. She made up two. She made one a female and the male. And this looked like a male to me. When you say brown, you don't mean mountain lion, cougar, puma brown. You mean a darker brown. No, no, a, a really, really dark brown, almost black. Okay. If we can talk about attitudes and emotions of, of you and other people, what were your emotions and attitudes having these experiences? When I first saw it in the paper that my friends had seen it, I thought, I have been waiting for years to see this animal and I've never seen it, yet a friend of mine has seen it. I phoned up my older son's godmother and I said, you'll never guess what I've seen. And she said, it wouldn't be a big black cat by any chance. And I said, have you seen it? Yes. (laughs) So I was pretty miffed about that. But excitement, definitely. The fact that it was there and I was staring at something that shouldn't be there. It was a wonderment and, you know, goosebumps. I can still feel the goosebumps now the thought of being that close. Any other emotions? Were you on edge? Were you anxious at all? I was scared shitless. Witless, sorry. Uh. (laughs) Uh, I wasn't quite so bad. If I got a better photo of it, I think I would have been able to prove all my, the doubting Thomases wrong because it's really difficult going through the rest of your life you know, saying I speak to everybody that I'm on a bus on a weekly, sometimes three weekly basis. Like today, I was on four buses today. And if I sit next to anybody, if I speak to the driver, I always ask them, have you ever seen a big black cat or anything bigger than a Scottish wildcat? Nine times out of 10, it's no, I haven't, but I know somebody who has. And everybody's the same. Everybody's doubted. It's really unfair because when you've seen that, especially that close, and people are saying it's just a load of rubbish, it's hurtful. I do take it to heart. So nobody can convince me. I know what I saw. I have asked policemen, bus drivers a lot. 
vets and every single one of them have said definitely they are definitely out there yeah so people polarized people who haven't had any contact with the subject are more doubtful you're saying yes i've had some people who are connected to churches and they've been too scared to say to anybody that they've seen a black cat. And this goes for a lot of people. We only get a very small percentage of people coming forward and actually admitting they've seen them because they're they're scared of ridicule and people, oh, you must take more water with it. And, you know, it's it's difficult. Okay. And just to finish off the reports to you, what are the proportions back to you in terms of sighting ratio? Definitely black leopard and a few caracals, actually. I did get a report of people that were working in a forestry commission area and they disturbed a pair of caracals. My friend from a village not that far from where I lived at the time, she had she phoned me up one day and said, I've got a funny dingo thing in the moss. And I said, well, it's not a dingo. I said, it's a cat. And it attacked my friend's female cat. And the the kitten had a broken pelvis and legs. And when I phoned up the Highland Wildlife Park, I was told that it was all nonsense. And that if there were any out there, I wouldn't be able to catch them. I always had traps out. There's no way my traps would have gone anywhere near them. They were far too small. And I was told if for any reason we did trap one, it would be shot because it's it's not an indigenous species. And it was difficult for me to go up to see all the tigers and the other big animals like polar bears and things like that. They just had their first cub at the time. And I was looking at all these non-indigenous species And they were telling me that my cats should be shot. It didn't make sense to me. Yeah, okay. They're distinguishing ones in captivity and ones in the wild. But of course, if the ones in the wild are just doing deer predation mainly, are they really that much of an impact on the ecosystem? Maybe they're a benefit to the ecosystem. Yes, I agree with that. Reports that I had of domestic kills, we had sheep, obviously, calves, a couple of quite young foals went and a piglet went. Some of these were seen actually by the witnesses and they were not very sure of the breed of cat. They had a a vague recollection of the colour alone, not the sight. The old people said, oh, we've been online and we can't see anything that that matches it. Somebody once said it, it was a snow leopard or a clouded leopard. I thought, no, well, well, that's going a bit much. Going back to the proportions, would you have had a a proportion of sandy brown, tan-coloured ones like Puma, Cougar, and would you have had a proportion of lynx sightings as well? Lynx, definitely. I've had a report of spotted cats and one or two of striped cats. I have no idea what they are. We went to Die Francis and... uh, we discussed what this person whose cat had been attacked and the lady that saw this the same cat a few miles further on and it it had disturbed a nesting bird, a ground nesting bird, and the, the bird flew up into the air and it just jumped into the air and clicked it with one paw and that was the end of the bird. 
There's not a lot of big cats that do that. Like a serval does with egrets. It could be a serval, yeah, yeah, it could be quite easily. Even lynx can do that, of course, but if, if they didn't think it was a lynx from their sighting. It's difficult. You don't know your breeds. It's quite difficult to hazard a guess of what it is. Also, you know, the age of the animal, the conditions of the weather, a wet cat can look a lot darker. And it looks a hairy, it's more flat-coated, but, you know, with a lynx, you're fairly sure about the end of the tail, if it's got a little black mark at the end of it and it's got tufted ears, you know, a short tail. But then uh, when I actually saw Di Francis's Kellis cats, they were very like them, but not so big. Yeah. And we'll come on to the Kellis cats in a minute, if we can. When you were starting to get the reports of the one that you saw the three times in the early part of your sort of career in this, again, what were the attitudes and feedback and um, emotions of people reporting them? Did they vary or was there a trend? There were a few people that were a little bit angry because one had been seen in Inverurie rifling through a bin. And this, this old couple had said that they, there should be something done about this because it was a huge animal. It was the height of the bin, obviously, stretching into the bin on its back legs. I have a photograph of that somewhere, which I'm hoping that Paul will pick up on Friday because he's coming to this area and I'm going to give him all my things and he can rifle through them and cross-reference them with sightings he's had. This is Paul MacDonald doing the, the Big Cats Facebook group and networking a lot with people. And in fact, he's introduced you to this podcast and hence why we have you on as a guest. So thanks to Paul for, right. for that. Yeah, yeah. well, that's great that you can pass on the material for him, passing on the baton, as it were. Well, I think in my time of life, I think somebody's going to have to do something with it because um, I'm not really in a position to do that now that, that Paul's got his map up and running, but I don't think he appreciates how much material I have. Well, that's a good problem to have, isn't it? What were the other emotions and attitudes you were picking up from people that were reporting them in the early stages? Well, most of them were just incredulous. They thought it was a fantastic thing to see. Not many people were scared when they saw them. Their dogs possibly would have been. Lots of reports about people's dogs never wanting to go out of the house ever again once they'd been in contact with one. And again, just this feeling of people not believing them. Other people think that they should be just left alone. I'm in that position as well. I think that they should be left alone. They're, they're not causing anybody any harm apart from the predation on farm animals. But sheep die for lots of different reasons. And it's like badgers are blamed for a lot of sheep kills and they just they'd keel over and die for lots of reasons ewes have triplets or twins and foxes come along and they'll take the one that's newly born so they do get a, a bad press it's a bit like red kites get a bad press as well they don't kill anything they they're scavengers people seem to think that they kill lambs they don't Sean, if you've got a bad attitude towards something, you often exaggerate its impacts. Although I think um, if you've got a positive attitude towards something, you're often soft on it anyway. So I think people can be a bit biased. Yes, I'm very soft towards the black cats. I, I really don't want to see them go to any harm, but I do know of three that have been shot by gamekeepers in the past. 
How did you, um, were you told directly or indirectly? Indirectly, but um, I have interviewed two of them and they were just trying to protect their wonderful game birds. What did they do? Did they bury and shut up? The conversation came to a halt and it was more or less, I'm not going to tell you anymore because they were a bit worried in case these animals were protected, which they're not. You can't protect something unless you know what it is. And they're certainly not going to protect wild cats that size. I mean, Scottish wild cats are different. They are protected, totally protected, but they still get shot. Did anybody of those three that claimed to have shot one, admitted to have shot, shot one, did any of them preserve the body, do you think, or did they get rid of them because they felt that there could be a backlash if they held on to something that was um, sensitive? I think they were all buried. They were all buried and they wouldn't tell me where to have a look for it. They just didn't really want to admit it. Do you think they were all black leopards from the description or is it hard to judge? Well, I know that they were breeding on a Benahi. A friend of a friend had found a kitten on Benahi and taken it home and raised it. Used to take it out with a collar and lead and people used to ask her, what breed it was, and she didn't have an answer. And then all of a sudden, this cat appeared. This is the one I'm talking about that I've seen. And it was very, very close to her house, and it did hang around quite a lot in that area. So, yeah. And it became, it grew into a a black leopard, did it? Yes. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, people were learning. This was early days, isn't it? A lot of people didn't have any experience in reading about this in in the press. I guess people were all fairly new to this and naive to to it all. But uh, do you think the gamekeepers tolerated them if they were behaving, or or did it vary, do you think? I don't think they tolerated them. I think a lot of the time that the the gamekeeper was out, you know, feeding his pheasants and just didn't have his gun in time and gone back to get the gun and the cat had disappeared. Seems to be the case in a lot of accounts. You're not always going to be able to get a clean, safe shot away, are you, in the circumstances of seeing one? You know, they don't go out in daylight all that much, but it does happen. If they're hungry enough, they'll go out during the day. I've had lots of accounts of them being seen just walking across the road as if nobody can see them. They seem to think they're invisible. Of course, the problem is that people keep asking, why is it just black ones that we're seeing? Why are we not seeing normal leopards? Well, they breed on black, though, don't they? Melanistic leopards breed on black. Black parents will breed on black, unlike black jaguars, which will produce about 25% offspring, normal spotted coloration. Anyway, yes, we better get on to Kellis cats then. So you met um, Di Francis, and this was in the 1980s, wasn't it, that Di Francis was researching these uh, Kellis cats. And you can define what you believe a Kellis cat to be, because I think it's actually added some complexity to the sort of intermediate sized black ones that people report because I still sometimes get people in different parts of the country saying oh I've seen a careless cat and I say what do you mean and they basically mean they've seen a, a larger than average black cat. Can you tell us what you were invited to see with Di Francis and what you think a careless cat is? As far as I'm concerned a careless cat is just purely that it's a cat that was trapped in the area of the Kellis estate. There's a Dufton cat. It was caught in Dufton. 
they all seem to be named after the area they were caught in. Di was trying to make sure that she had to get, I think it was either 10 or 12 of the same species of cat, black, callus, call them what you want. And they had to be verified by the, the zoology people. I think it was in Edinburgh. And she couldn't get them all at the time. But when I went up there, we purely went up there because I'd read a couple of her books and I knew she had them. And she had three of them. She had Fred and Frida, and that was her breeding pair. And she also had a three-legged cat called Kelly. And when we went up to see them, we there were four of us in the car. The lady whose cat had been attacked initially that I lent the cage to, the lady that saw it in the moss in her area, and another lady who's my best friend, and we all went up there and Di had them in a cage. We didn't get as long as we'd hoped to because our daughter had to go to the doctor. Uh, but we, I got several photographs and they are fierce. They don't remind me of a Highland wildcat at all, but it's only slightly bigger, but it's a much different build. They've got much longer legs. They've got a very short, stubby tail with a brush at the end of them, of the tail. They're built like a whippet, bigger, but built like a whippet with a thick neck and very, very fierce. I mean, obviously, they weren't happy that we were there, but she did breed from them. But unfortunately, she only fed them meat, but no calcium, no bones or anything like that. So the, the kitten's bones kept breaking. They didn't survive. I don't know what happened to Fred and Frida. They were much, much fiercer than a feral cat and much bigger in the jaw. You don't think they were a hybrid uh, wild cat and feral that had just gone a little bit bigger? Well, I was trying to prove that it was an indigenous species in its own right. But there is one that's up in the museum at Elgin, right next to the mounted Scottish wildcat. And there's not a huge difference in the size. It's just the confirmation's different. I don't think that they were good specimens that were in the museums. I don't think museums have got good specimens. Did she ever get the DNA of the ones she had? I have read that all of the cats were tested DNA-wise and they all came up as being a hybrid of a Scottish wild cat, which is disappointing. But you can't, you can't lie, you know, that's the truth. It's still an interesting concept. It's still an interesting animal, isn't it? And she, she was trying to prompt landowners and gamekeepers and other people to come up with um, further ones. Wasn't she worried that she might start a bounty and she didn't want to deliberately do that? Most of them were cats that had been caught in the snares or traps or killed on the road or shot, but nothing like the cats that I'd seen. I think my the ones that I saw, the three that I saw of the same cat, was a young one. It was quite frightening when I actually saw how big it was. I mean, there was nothing there for scale. There was nobody standing beside it. I measured the fence post. The fence had been there for years. But of course, the cat didn't stand next to it. It just sort of slunk underneath it. I was hoping it would jump over the top, but it didn't want to do that. Di Francis had this theory that there was a hideout cat, as she called it, that was an indigenous 
medium yeah. large cat in Britain that had been around and just was undocumented and it wasn't even documented in folklore unless you would claim that the black dog sightings or some of the black dog legend sightings were this cat in fact. And that was my theory as well. You know, people in years and years gone by, they didn't really get the chance to see big cats or big anything, really. Wolves, yes, they would have probably seen that. They would have had Scottish deerhounds, Irish wolfhounds, things like that. The translation of Cruden Bay is Bay of the Big Cat. Well, Black Dog, which is just quite near to Balmedy, why couldn't it not have been a black cat if they didn't know what they were looking at, if they didn't realise that there was a, a species of cat that was that big? They might have just thought, well, it must be a dog, so we'll call it black dog, the area. They were conditioned for dogs, not cats. Yeah. You feel that that is credible, this hideout cat, this intermediate, smaller than a black leopard, but still big enough to prey on small deer, perhaps. You feel that's a credible theory, do you? I'm in between because there's always this thought that all these cats seem to come around when the airbase at Brechen, I think it was, closed down. And I would imagine, this is just my theory, I would imagine that it would be quite easy for Americans to take in baby black leopards but then when everything was decommissioned, what would you do with them? It might not be easy to take them back out of the country again. Why not just set them free? Yeah, and I think Paul McDonald, in his networking past year or so especially, he's had further allegations of releases in the past known about. Very difficult to verify, and of course, and people are very careful about what they say about past releases, but often there's no smoke without fire on these sorts of things. So if there could be various sources of founder stock. Back to this thing about are they non-native and does it matter if they are non-native? Well, if some of them are actually enlarged felis catus, uh, feral cats, maybe mixed with with wildcat as well, then they're not non-native. They are British, aren't they? And if they've evolved... Let's say they're British. A lot of the big houses, estates, had a lot of like menageries and there are several still around that still have the, the cages and they used to keep bears and things like that in them. I'm really on the fence about this where did they come from thing. Yeah. Obviously the melanistic leopards came from Malaya or Malay Peninsula and Java rather than uh, grew up in, well they've grown up in Britain, they've naturalised, but if there's another black one around that does complicate and or make it much more interesting in terms of uh, the whether they're British, you know, whether, how we classify them as well. I don't think that will ever be answered until we actually get a body that you can test. Or several bits of DNA, however you get them. I did try and get hair samples from the one that went under the fence, but I failed. It didn't leave any. Did you ask the gamekeepers if they would dig up part and give you some remains or bit of bone? The conversation came to an abrupt halt when they said that they'd shot them. They didn't want to speak. None of them wanted to speak about what they did with the body. What about the kills, the carcasses? What sort of struck you when you examined carcasses? Did you examine sheep and deer or was it more sheep that you looked at? Well, actually more deer, really. The sheep, I have a theory about that as well. 
if you put a goat in a field of sheep, the goat will go every time. They're much easier to dispatch. There's, they're not so much woolly. You know, they can they usually start with an ear and pull the ear right down and take the fleece off. But it's still hard work. If you put sheep in there, a sheep is much easier to dispatch and it's lighter weight and they can go off with them. I've had more sheep carcasses than goats, but I've had goats, I've had ponies, foals and a piglet. It just disappeared within 10 minutes of it being out with the sow for the first time. And each one of these, this was reported by the owners, was it, as a possible big cat for you to check? Yes, and the goat was actually by the vet that uh, took the goats over from my friend that had seen what she thought was a dingo in the moss beside her. Okay, and the ear being torn off is uh, very interesting, and it's certainly consistent with what I see. Perhaps 60% of the time on those carcasses, whether it's a sheep or a deer, there's an ear off and sometimes there's two ears off. It, it is like they use them for purchase. So it's almost like the pull tab, isn't it? That It's where you start. Yes. I, I've also found when I've been examining sheep kills, especially and deer, that there's hardly any, if any, blood left and hardly any sign of blood anywhere. Seems to me that that's what they're after. I think also the blood does stop flowing very quickly as well in that situation in in a predation event. But yes, it is very rare, isn't it, to see blood? Even in the the, the cases where they have actually dragged the, the carcasses a good distance, there's very little of a trail of blood from where it happened. And what about the stomach remains out? Do you see that sometimes on a really fresh one before it's been scavenged? Because being strict carnivores, they can't really eat a herbivore's stomach with its grassy remains. Do you see the stomach sometimes? What they call the grackle in a deer is usually left to the side, but then other carnivores come along and eat that or take it away. So the stomach is usually empty. But, you know, if you think if a cat has got enough time to eat a certain amount of flesh, It's not going to eat the whole thing at once. Obviously, it can't. To be honest, I've never seen one up a tree, but that's only because I've not been in the right place at the right time. But my daughter-in-law actually phoned me one day and said, I found a leg. And, well, she texted me. She didn't phone me. And the time I got the text, she was home. And I said, did you not think of looking into the tree to see where the rest of it was? They don't have the time to eat that amount of flesh in one sitting. Unless there's two of them. Unless there's two of them or, or babies. But I do I do know they're breeding. I've had so many reports of people seeing two adults together, an adult and, two, and a couple of kits, you know, cubs. Are people, when they see that, are they more emotionally positive and fascinated because it can be quite a touching sight to see mother and young, or, or does it just vary? If you're not a scared sort of person, because I'm not normally a scared person, I've been traumatised by several feral cats in the past, far more than I ever was with the sighting of this this black cat in front of my car, because I knew I was fairly safe in the car. But yes, people react in different ways. People are in awe of seeing something that shouldn't be there. And oh yes, you know, there's more than one and there's a cub. 
you know, how it's wonderful that they're out there. A lot of people say that. It's just wonderful that they're out there. Who knows how many are they being shot as quickly as they produce? I don't know. The people who have had predation of, of goats or sheep or, or whatever, surely some of their attitudes are different. Have you picked that up at all? Yes, I must admit that the ponies and the foals that I have interviewed people who have lost them, it's just been anger and, you know, if they had a gun, they would shoot them. But this country is big enough for everything to survive. It still have to be shot. Does it frustrate you that you haven't been able to get more, like the rest of us really, more firmer, better evidence? Or do you just realise it is such a challenge given the nature of these animals? When I came here, I had retired. When I came here, I don't have a car anymore and I would definitely be out in the field. Um, There have been one or two sightings where I live now and a sighting of a very strange cat. I'm still waiting for an artist's impression on it, but the lady's an author, so might have to wait a good while before she gets time to do it. But this this was a large cat with very long legs, a very small head. And she said it was a sort of fawn colour. She didn't give me the tail because it was sitting down at the time. And But she's an artist. She knows the difference in scale from a domestic cat to a non-Indigenous species. So I'm, I'm waiting. I'm just hoping that she will do the, the deal for me. I know she's in the middle of writing a book at the moment, so that's the delay. Yeah, you know, artist impressions can be very useful, can't they? Because I think you can learn a lot from them. They may not be perfect, but they give you a sense of, of what it could be. Well, hopefully. The other problem is because when it, when it all kicked off with big cats being seen and reported, then, of course, the police, there was a big clampdown. Oh, we mustn't tell. It mustn't be in the papers. You know, people will be going out trophy hunting and, you know, there's nothing worse than having an injured big cat on the loose. It was a huge cover-up, and it still is. Okay, how do you justify that? I'm I'm not challenging that, but how do you justify that, Carol, that statement? Well, I have friends who have friends that work in the police force. Yeah, words gets around. Maybe not so much now because there aren't so many seen and there have been some shot. But it is a big, a big cover-up. They don't want people to be scared witless like what happened down when Di Francis had the army was taken in to try and find this big cat. They never got it. When the Marines were next more, you mean? That's right, yeah. And nobody really wants that. They've got better things to do than, than hunt for big cats here. So you think public bodies, especially the police, sort of evade it and are a little bit shifty at times because it's just so awkward? Perhaps they can't do much anyway, but they tend to play it down as much as they can. I think that's the reason. They just don't want people to go out there blasting everything that moves. And if there's kids getting involved and you know creeping around in camouflage equipment and not be able to see somebody shoots one, and that would be the end of it. We can become more dangerous than this supposed beast. Had you had trail cameras and camera traps and better cameras in the early stages, do you think you would have made more progress because technology's come on a bit now? I would have. If I'd been able to afford trail cameras, I would have had the perfect place to put them. I just didn't have access to them and I couldn't afford them and they weren't that easy to get those in those days. And they weren't that good in those days either. 
they were 35 mil film ones. You only had about 36 exposures on each one. Yes. And they kept getting stolen as well. I know that you were active in an email group at the time, days before social media and before Facebook groups, but you were networking with other sort of investigators. And how did you find that? Did you find it useful to swap notes with people who were also taking reports and, and being witnesses? And it was called the uh, Big Cats in Scotland group. That's right, yes. It was very thrilling for me back then. You know, it was new to me. I had got involved because I'd seen this cat three times. And I miss those days. I miss the, the thrill of the chase and going out and uh, looking in snow for, for tracks and the, the scuff of the tail and people phoning me up and saying, oh, I've seen one and it's, you know, it's done this, it's done that, it's taken my kitten. I miss those days. But they're still out there. I'm a good bit older now and I can't really do it. But the baton is passing on to people like Paul and his network of people, so that you must be heartened by that. Yeah. All my 30 years of witness statements and everything are going to be passed to Paul on Friday, whether he likes it or not. Yeah, well, and he's also marshaled a you know, network of keen, motivated, responsible people who are going to carry it on, hopefully, and make some progress. How did you find getting trust and getting the information? Did you have to work hard to get people to trust you? Not everybody is going to reveal what's going on, are they? They're going to be very careful who they tell. I'm a bit like that myself. I, I don't tell everybody. I have to suss out somebody before I can actually tell them. I don't want to be laughed at. I don't want to be ridiculed. I know what I've seen. I've got all this evidence. You know, people might say, oh, she's just speaking a load of rubbish. But once you've seen them, you, you never forget that. And it lives with you for the rest of your life. What would you like to happen, say, in 20, 30 years' time on the subject? Where would you like the subject to be? Do you think the mystery actually is helpful? Because some people say, well, actually, for the sake of the cats, maybe we shouldn't make too much progress. But I suppose there's another view. Well, if these cats are here, we should learn more about them, about their behaviour and movements and yeah. distribution and, and scientifically the species and whatever. Where do you stand on all of that? Well, as long as there are people out there that will shoot them, I don't think they will be overpopulated. I do think there should be some sort of predator out there. I'm on the camp that there's definitely links out there already. There's all this rubbish about reintroducing them. They're here already. Did you ever find definite evidence that pets were taken in those early days when you were having those early sightings? Yes, two definites. Um, an older dog that had been in a, an enclosed garden totally disappeared. There was no way it could get out, but it was an elderly dog. And then somebody phoned me up and said there was a big cat seen in the evening in the village and it was carrying something. And I presumed it might be a rabbit or somebody's pet rabbit, but actually it was my friend's cat. I could never tell her that it was her cat. How did you know? By the description of it and the colour, I couldn't tell her that her beloved cat of many years had been taken by a black cat. It just shows you that pets in the right circumstances, as far as the big cat's concerned, will be a target sometimes. Yes. Do you think that could have changed attitudes? Would people have been vengeful and anti the big cat if they'd have known that, do you think? I'm not sure because I've had cats of my own and I certainly wouldn't like anything taking my cats. I know of people who... I've had their cats torn to shreds by neighbours' dogs, just pulled apart. 
it can happen. You know, if you have an animal in captivity, then anything can happen. But it's always worse if it's a black cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about um, vets and vets' awareness and vets looking at uh, injuries of potential prey items and injured uh, farm stock? Do you think some vets have become alert and aware and experienced on this, or do you think it just varies? The vets I've spoken to have all been in agreement that they're definitely out there. They have seen, they've measured the difference between the canines and said this is definitely not a dog, much bigger than a dog. And they all say the same thing, you know, they're out there. Do you think some vets are just inexperienced so they don't know what they're looking for? Do you think some some vets have become experienced now in seeing these kinds of injuries that result from a big cat? I'm sure they are, but they don't get much training in, in vet school to deal with animals that have been predated by by big felines. Yeah, I'm, I have to say I've been lucky enough to have the opportunity three times to give briefings to vet students, which was uh, excellent. So that, that was very helpful. But of course, it's a long way before it becomes accepted and systematic for that kind of thing to happen more widely. But uh, it is. I think vets are you know, one of the frontline sort of professions that is a, going to be one of the intermediaries on this, isn't it? Yes. But of course, some of them also remain very sceptical. I've heard, I've had reports from vet nurses, for example, people who work in veterinary clinics and um, say that the professional vets, you know, just thought it was a load of nonsense. So I think it depends on their experience and their exposure to it. I think they would take some convincing, a lot of them, but is it... You know, have the police got to them? Have they said, right, you know, just pretend you haven't seen them? You do sound cynical, but because of your experience, uh, Carol, I guess. Well, we're petering out, Carol, and it's all been extremely useful. And I think listeners will be so pleased that your experience and your legacy is being passed on and your files and material and Paul can harness it with his network of people. Any other final points you'd like to make before we close? Anything that you'd like to say that you don't think we've covered properly so far? Just please, people who have seen them, take a note of what time, where, what the colour was, how big it was compared to a breed of dog that they know, which season it was, the weather, and report it. Don't keep it to yourself. Go and report it to the right body. We will believe. 90% of the things that come our way, there'll always be that 10% of doubt, especially in the Scottish wildcat stakes. And we're not a Scottish wildcat action group, but we're getting more photographs now of that. And my main reason for being in the cats protection was to neuter as many cats as I could, farm cats, to stop the dilution of the purebred wildcat which there are very few of now just please report it don't keep it to yourself write everything down take a photo if you can or compare it to a fence post or things like that and especially with the paw prints pug marks when i had a car i used to have plaster of paris i used to take molds of suspicious pug marks a lot of them weren't cats so a lot of them turned out to be dogs It's all very exciting. Add to the data in whatever way you can, even just the the bare bones of the report itself, because it adds to the geographical sort of data bank. 
And anything that Paul arranges to do, like at Glam's Castle or any of the hunting, shooting, fishing weekends that are held, you know, try and support him and what he does. We all want the truth. We all want to be out there flying the flag for big cats. It's the people's revolution to to get the data and discover it and learn more. Yeah. And of course, you, you're mentioning Paul at these events. And Paul is starting to do what I've done in the past, uh, and that is have stalls and information tables and tents at rural shows and game fairs and that sort of thing where people can network and he and his contacts can get more information we're going to hear some of the feedback from those events and eventually I might um, try and join him on, on some when I can get up to Scotland. These things don't happen with no money. You can't leave it up to one individual. That's why the Big Cats in Scotland website went down because there wasn't enough people, weren't enough people adding to the coffers. You know, none of this is for free. On the Big Cat Sightings in Scotland Facebook group, there is a way people can donate, isn't there, for that? Yes, there is. Yeah, yeah, I've done it myself. Well, put the link to that with this episode. And interesting that you mentioned the Scottish Wildcat, the uh, efforts to minimise and prevent the dilution of it as it becomes mixed with uh, feral cats and obviously at a critically low point at the moment. The Highland Tiger. Have you had many sightings yourself of uh, Scottish Wildcats, Carol? Over the years, yes, I've had a, a lot of input. I mean, I know I can usually tell by the build of tabby cat, whether it's part wild cat. Yeah, I can usually tell. There's so many indicators. And we, we do have people in my area that uh, have a conservation, they're part of the breeding group, but we don't want them to go to extinct. How many times do you think you've seen a pure European wild cat? Not very often. I've seen them in the Highland Wildlife Park. And they're really not 100% pure. There's very, very few now. They're very stealthy themselves, aren't they? Very tricky to see. It's a bit like a big black cat, you know. The chances of seeing them are slim, but if they think they're invisible, then they will come out during the day. But a wild cat, a Scottish wild cat, they want to stay out of sight. They want to be able to breed in private. They don't want to be put away in a Highland Wildlife Zoo or whatever. It's no life for them. It's a shame, but that's the only way that we can keep them going. It's a really sad story, but we must do what we can to uh, preserve the gene stock and uh, learn about them and help any that remain wild. We'll have an episode on that coming up soon, so thank you for queuing that one in. Great. Well, Carol, I think we're, we're done. And uh, thank you for going through all those points and learnt a lot from you. And uh, it's good that you remain interested and networking with people and in touch with people. And great that this work will continue in Scotland. We have more to come soon from Scotland. So meantime, Carol, thanks ever so much for coming on Big Cat Conversations. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. Well, we mentioned the Scottish Big Cat Research Stand that will be at certain rural shows from this summer in 2022. And Carol urged people to support that work. On our website for this edition, there's a link to the crowdfunding page to raise funds for all of that activity. 
I know Paul and colleagues will do a good professional job of all that, but any help with all the costs that will mount up for them would be appreciated, of course. So that link is under episode 76 for the Refs and Links page on the Big Cat Conversations website. And as part of a future Scotland episode, we will get an overview from Paul of recent information and the noteworthy issues that have been picked up across all of that work happening in Scotland. Now to our word of the week, and we have a word which perhaps applies to our guest Carol, reflecting her commitment and dedication to the welfare of cats of all sizes. So the word is ilerophilia, and that means a love of cats or a fondness for cats. It comes from the Greek word for cat, which is ileros. So there we are, short and sweet, and with due credit to Carol's work helping and caring for cats, word of the week is ilerophilia. Now, in terms of recent sightings we've heard about, well, last episode was about the view from the train and the possibility of large cats using railway line corridors for their travel routes and to check out for prey. So how nice it was to have a sighting from Norfolk from a listener soon after that episode was released, and this report was of a large black cat active on a railway line as he was walking that way not far from his house. So a great coincidence to get a railway line report right on cue, and the width of the railway line was useful in helping judge the scale of that cat. In terms of coming episodes, we have some interesting sightings in North Wiltshire coming up, and we also have an addition on a couple of close-up encounters, and that will include a very recent case near Doncaster of a black panther running close to cyclists. So we'll discuss that one with the witness and consider what was happening in that incident. We also have some recent cases from South West Wales coming up in an episode, and special thanks go to Matthew in South Wales for helping us scout for those incidents. And we are also planning a North Wales show to follow soon after. And coupled with more from Scotland, as usual we'll be bringing you people's observations and their thoughts on large cats from across Britain in the next few editions. Okay, we are closing out now, so thanks again to our guest Carol, and thank you everyone for listening and for supporting the show. Take care and bye for now.